Good evening. Welcome to Wake Island. Nikita Brotman is on the show tonight. She's an author and psychoanalyst. Her latest book is called Couple Found Slain, and it's written in the mode of true crime, but I think it's very much its own thing. The book focuses on Brian Bechtold, who murdered his parents in 1992. After the killings, he turned himself into the police and said that he was possessed by the devil. Brian was eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia and ruled not criminally responsible for the murder on the grounds of insanity. And I'm going to read the synopsis from the back to give you a better idea of what this book's about. After the trial, where did the criminally insane go? Brotman reveals Brian's inner life leading up to the murder, as well as his complicated afterlife in a maximum security psychiatric hospital where he's neither in prison nor free. During his 27 years at the hospital, Brian has tried to escape and has been shot by police and has witnessed three patient-on-patient murders. He's experienced the drugging of patients beyond recognition, a sadistic system of rewards and punishments, and the short-lived reign of a crazed psychiatrist turned stalker. Brotman offers literary true crime writing at its best, taking us into the life of a murderer after his conviction, when most stories end, but the defendant's life goes on. And I just love it when a writer can take a well-worn trope or genre like true crime and turn it inside out to show us that there's still so much we don't know about the world or humanity. And most importantly, art shouldn't have to teach us a lesson or be expected to heal us. We all know that life is complicated and messy, so it's always refreshing to come across art that doesn't hide reality but manages to light up the darkest corners. Nikita also wrote the commentary for a book called 82189, Confessions of a Prison Bitch, which is put out by Nine Banded Books. I think this book is just a fascinating and nasty little memoir straight from hell. The author goes by the pen name Henry Bellows, and he died in jail before this memoir came out. The text is about his origins and the sex crimes that were committed by him and against him. Prison Bitch is as dark as it gets. Nikita even does an interview with Peter Sotis at the end along with Chip Smith. So if you want to feel totally immersed in darkness, get in the Makita's world. She's a legendary figure in the transgressive lit scene and a fascinating thinker. I've been wanting to talk to her ever since I started Wake Island, so this one was just an absolute pleasure. So here it is, my conversation with Makita Brotman. I mean, I'm I'm trying to write something right now about my interest in the in the slums and exploring the slums. And I've like everything I've read about the Baltimore inner city is always like, well, criticizing the use of the word slum, talking about ideology and racism and poverty and and um, and I just want to write about the aesthetic, like the pure the pure experience and the and the feeling and the smell and the, and, you know, but not to get tied right. up in politics and recent history. And, and every time I've like pitched this as an article to, to any publication, they will say, Oh, you can't, you can't do that. You have to, <laughs> you have to get into politics. And like, I, and I just don't want to, I don't want to, I'm not interested in that side of it. I'm interested in like 
how it what it looks like and the beauty of it and the you know the feeling of it oh i think you absolutely should i'm sure there's plenty of people who who are who feel that way too you know who are interested in that because so much has been written about the poli- politics and race and you know urban development it, it seems as though they want to protect the people that are from those areas but i imagine that someone from that area would love to read a poetic interpretation of that part of town instead of another think piece by a white person about why it is the way it is and the injustices that have fallen upon it why not just write about something that you think is beautiful and then let it be just that i know that's what i want to do I've been a longtime reader of yours, and I've always just been so enamored by how your sensibilities and your fascinations seem so consistent, especially in terms of tone. So I wonder, has there been a formative aesthetic that doesn't have to really be art-related that is something that you can look back on that seems to inform your current sensibilities, your current aesthetic? Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, and... um... All I can really say is that I've always been kind of dissatisfied with the world as it is and always like kind of knowing that there was something else, but not knowing how to peel back the surface or find the hidden crack or the, the doorway or the, the secret entrance to that, you know, that other side of things. And it's not necessarily, it's not like, you know, a beautiful secret garden. It's, it's like a, the secret to the way things really are and I remember having um like ordering this book from the children's library it was a, about a serial killer in Chicago called William Hirons and the book was called Before I Kill More and I just <laughs> read it recently actually again and it was like this guy who you know it's really bizarre pervert who would climb in window women's windows and like steal the underwear and commit murders and like one of the murders he scrawled on the wall please someone stop me before I kill more so it's this really strange like split personality kind of thing and I was just like how did I I ordered this book from the children's library and I remember reading it at school and my friends were playing outside in the playground so from a very early age I was you know very morbid and very different and like really curious about the, the way things happened and what went on beneath the, under the surface of everyday reality, but where it actually comes from, I can't think of a particular experience or, you know, I was born that way. And I think that that example is kind of perfect because our sensibilities are very uh, aligned. I mean, I, I really love the stuff you write about and I've tried to model this show in a, in a similar vein in terms of the tone of these things. Do you see your practice and approach to psychoanalysis to also be somewhat of an aesthetic journey or somehow tied into your artistic predilections? Oh yeah, completely. I think I think people um, get the wrong impression, you know, when they when they learn that I'm a psychoanalyst or I or I talk about psychoanalysis and I think of it as like, you know, something to do with medicine or psychology or therapy. I mean, to me, it's like my interest in it is through, because it's, it's the way I think anyway, you know, everything to do with language and symbols and repression and sublimation and looking under the surface of things. And 
I think it's a very artistic way of thinking. I think it's the way that many writers think. But also there's this intersection with the, the occult and dreams and telepathy and ghosts and fortune telling and all of that kind of repressed stuff that, like to me, it's like, it's much more like art than like medicine. It's more like magic, like a, an interest in the, the repressed side of things, the things that people don't talk about. And it's also a way of, you know, I was talking before about the crack and finding the crack in things. It's a way of, it's a way of seeing parts of the world and parts of people that you wouldn't ordinarily see, like a way into the darkness. And so I'm interested in psychoanalysis rather than like psychology or therapy or social work because it doesn't have that affiliation with medicine or or all of that stuff around mental health and insurance and science and all the stuff that I criticize in, in my book, in my new book, it's much more mystical and mysterious than that. There's a, an organization called Das Umbehagen in New York, and it's like, the word means discontent, and it refers to an essay of Freud's, but it's like an unaffiliated psychoanalyst who are interested in, you know, not necessarily like seeing patients, but thinking about things, art, culture, writing from a psychoanalytic point of view. So it's, you know, it's not different from the rest of my interests at all. In fact, it's kind of a, a gelling of them. I don't know much about psychoanalysis, but when I think about it, it seems to be less about answers and more about getting at some sort of intrinsic truth and unveiling the human condition. And some of the stuff you're talking about is in terms of just like peeling back the, the surface layer and seeing what's there relates to the idea of psychic disturbances that start to manifest in the body and the mind as either physical pain or as something, like you said, like ghosts or poltergeists. Yeah, and it's like much more akin to philosophy or thinking about the parts of being human that are are non-medical like philosophy and emotions and spirituality and those kinds of components of the personality which sometimes do manifest in physical ways but they're human problems and that's you know one of the um, difficulties I have in the book in Couple Found Science but in Brian's situation because he's like so caught in this trap of like basically you're either a doctor or a patient and there's no in-between where, whereas I think so many questions to do with what's called mental health are actually to do with emotions, philosophy, spirituality, you know, existential predicaments, components of the personality, just human problems. It's funny to think too that there isn't a lot of respect for those ideas, yet when you think about psychology, especially in terms of the two books that I want to talk to you about, it seems like so much of it is biased and not very fully formed. So it is kind of odd to think that there is a disavowal of certain ways of looking at these issues, especially since it doesn't seem like there's a very clear answer or a clear method for diagnosing this stuff and, and talking about it. And that's because it's so bound up with money and insurance companies and and the way that mental disorders are defined as a subset of medical disorders, like, and, and psychiatry is a subset of medicine. And like, of course, it's important, you know, that mental health should be taken as seriously as physical health. But at the same time, 
there's no dividing line between mental. I mean, mental illness isn't just an organic illness in the brain. It's it's comes from your family and and the components of your personality and your problems of and the predicament of being human and living in a human body and talking about mental health problems as illness just kind of closes down the discussion I think and it, it's very and anything that's not science or medicine is sort of devalued I think you're right when you think about your own body of work from the lens of a psychoanalysis like has it helped you or have you been able to articulate like what it is within you that's drawn towards elements of the uncanny the misaligned and the morbid like have you been able to find out where or expand upon where your fixation on darkness comes from sorry that i sound like dr freud right now that was very pretentious of me the way i I worded that (laughs) i i think everyone should be as interested as i am i don't think like you know we're all going to die and these things are part of being human so i'm always surprised when people are not interested in them I think maybe, you know, when you're a kid and like every kid comes to a realization that the world is not the way you thought it was in childhood. Like, you know, your parents don't necessarily (laughs) love you and you are actually alone and you're going to die and all those kind of dark realizations that you have as a person. I think those came to me at an earlier age than to most kids. And, And then I felt like, I don't want to be foxed again. I don't want to be deluded again. And I'm always going to pay attention to the bottom line and and know, like, make sure that I know what's going on here. That's the only way I can articulate it, I think. Well, here's another example. You know how you're talking about enjoying seedy things? Yes. Well, if you ever have the experience when, you you know, you get up and you're going about your business and then, like, you suddenly come across a cockroach in your sink and it gives you this terrible creepy realization that there's this whole other layer of life going on these insects are all around you like there's cockroaches living in your walls and your pipes and dust mites living in the furniture and there's this whole like other insects layer of life living around you and it's like the Burroughs moment in Naked Lunch where everyone sees what's on the end of every <laughs> right, fork. Right. It's that kind of revelation moment and I feel like um, I don't want to be lulled into forgetting that. Like I want to see, I want to remember that all the time that, you know, we're so close to these insects and this, I don't want to forget about those, those horrors that go on. Absolutely. And, you know, you brought up the word seedy and I think part of the thrill and the fascination of, of seediness and seedy places and this kind of warehouse district that we're talking about and, and slums is that there is a seed of potential. It's like there's like a wetness to the atmosphere of the seedy place. It's almost like spilt seed. It's like spilt semen. There's something that's kind of gross and disgusting about it, but there's also the potential of like, who knows what's going to happen? Like, where is this going to, what is this going to open up to? What will this germinate into? You're, you are peeling the curtain back, but it's not like you're looking into this, some sort of like occult mystic place. You're actually just seeing like what other human beings are, are, are up to and what their, what their desires are. I agree with you, but I would have a slightly different metaphor. I mean, when you talk about a fruit that's gone to seed, it's, it's wasted, you know, the, those seeds can't grow. Mm-hmm. It's like in the Bible, 
people who like you said spill their seed on the ground it's like that seed can't can't grow into anything it's it's wasted but within that wasted seed there's still this undergrowth of life that's that's fascinating and compelling and I really liked when you talked about slum creepers because like creepy I think is my favorite word <laughs> rather than sleepy I like I like the idea of creepy because it's it's like that's basically how human beings used to be we used to walk on all fours and we used to be close to the ground and we used to creep like that and we and we forget about that you know we forget that we we are creepers essentially <laughs> we are indeed yeah. very much so yeah. yeah i think i would like that word more if it wasn't used as a description yeah. for me for most of my life right. <laughs> oh, well i think it's a I, I would be flattered but like even i was just thinking about how that all the power lines these disused power lines in the slums here are like covered in creepers and it's like creepers are taking over you know there's a real power in creepers because they're not taken seriously they're you know they're trodden underfoot so i think it's time for the revenge of the creepers <laughs> i like that yeah it's absolutely time for the revenge of the creepers i think that's a, a, a fantastic metaphor and i think like that's a, maybe a good way to like maybe also talk about because you i wouldn't say you're a true crime author but the way I think of you is, you know, you're an artist that writes in the modality of true crime. And especially because true crime is just so popular right now, especially like in all kind of unexpected walks of life. But I think what makes it somewhat trite at this moment is that there's this almost expectation or there's like a need for healing and closure and catharsis, yet that's not the role of art but at this moment there's that seems to be like what's demanded of it yet you know when I read something like confessions of a prison bitch or couple found slain this idea of creepers comes back in where those ideas just kind of get covered over with something to me that feels much closer to the truth where you can just see them for what they are not for the lessons that they could potentially teach me this is a problem I often have when teaching is that, you know, students want to to be taught something or to learn something or to have some kind of takeaway from, and I often think that like really good literature leaves you feeling that you know less than you did before and that you're, you're less of a person than you were before. You've learned how little you know and learned how impossible any kind of closure or any of those formulations are, how ridiculous they are, because I don't like any almost hardly write any true crime that I read because it's a very, very conservative genre. It always takes the one perspective, the perspective of the victim and the prosecution and law enforcement, and people don't want to read about, people want their comfortable assumptions reinforced. Right. Well, comfort is the word. It's like become comfort yeah. food or something. It's, it's right. very odd right. that, um, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but it definitely feels like it's almost like infused itself with pornography and junk food and become this, I don't even know what the word is that I'm looking for, but it, it's, it's odd that it's both like reaffirming and also some sort of entertainment that people can objectify killers and feel somehow, somehow feel better. I don't know. There's just something yeah. like slightly like perverse about it, but not perverse in like a way that I enjoy, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've heard that the women are a huge part of the audience of true crime and that 
and that it's a way of like making them feel safer or something, but I think that's just nonsense. I think that it's this very artificial genre, very formulate as formulaic as romance. I think romance novels distract you and lie to you and make you believe that the world is a certain way. Right, right. It's like our generation's Harlequin novel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That and true crime is like that, that the victims' families have closure and good is rewarded and the bad guys are are punished and the cops are good and and the world is just and it's just a it's an illusion you know it it perpetuates the illusion that murder is caused by random evil for one thing and also that that there's this binary you're either a a a victim or a perpetrator and there's nothing in between i wonder if you think that because you're saying that it is kind of so specific to women. And I do wonder if it's like women all over the world or if this is specific to, to women in America. But it, especially when I think about this country, it does make me wonder if there's some sort of fetishistic quality to objectifying things that are punitive and puritanical, especially as they relate to American life and are intertwined with law and the fetishization of police, even if they're an object of hatred, which just then pushes it into like an S&M type of place that lends itself to this infatuation over serial killers and the machinations of law and punishment and just kind of becomes an extension of that. Oh, yeah, you're you're right, because, you know, most, I mean, when people talk about true crime, they most crime is nothing to do with homicide. It's to do with like tax fraud, right, <laughs> things right. that are like completely uninteresting. And what they mean is a very, very, specific, very tiny percentage of crimes that are committed. And and in fact, most most crimes are are not solved. Even most homicides are not solved. And and I think that the prison bitch book really you know, his narrative really expresses this very, very clearly that, you know, we like to believe that victims are these undeserving, innocent people, and then these evil perpetrators who deserve to be punished. And, and it's so much more interesting and complicated than that, I think, you know, that, that victim and perpetrator are both different points on the spectrum in the same person's life. And just depends on what point in their lives you're telling the story. And true crime just assumes that everything is, is one way. I'm looking at this quote that you have, and it's at the end of the book that you wrote a commentary for, Confessions of a Prison Bitch, and it's an interview you did with Chip Smith, who runs Nine Banded Books, Mm -hmm. who published this, and it is basically, (laughs) I'm repeating a little bit of what you just said, but I think it's very eloquently put here, and you say, in relation to the question of victims and empathy, we like to believe that victims are undeserving, innocent. People and perpetrators are evil and deserve to be punished. Whereas, in fact, victim and perpetrators are different points on the spectrum in a person's life. Most perpetrators were once victims themselves. It just depends at what point in their lives they're choosing to tell the story. That's my problem with true crime in a nutshell. I love that. That's great. Yeah, I was thinking of, um, there's a, I think it's Orson Welles who talks about happy endings and romance and <laughs> Um, someone asked him about like white stories ending in marriage and marriage being a happy ending and he just says well if there's a happy ending it just depends on what point you you're stopping the story you know most marriages end in divorce like if you stop the story at the marriage then it all works out and it's the same with true crime it's very formulaic and structured but the same person who is a perpetrator was once the victim 
the way those narratives are told are meant to animate something, but it's actually not about the perpetrator or the victim. It's some sort of other narrative that's supposed to make you feel better. Do you think that the true crime genre, as it exists right now in pop culture, has exhausted itself? I don't know, because I, I don't really have have much of a finger on the pulse of pop culture. I don't really know. I can't really predict things like that. I don't really follow it. You know, I don't really watch television. So I know that what what I want and what interests me is not reflected in any of that. And it really bores me. And um, it's too it's too much tied to like social policies and editing and structuring of narratives and not leaving them messy and chaotic and failed and inadequate. True, true. However, right. But however, you did write a book called An Unexplained Death that was subsequently not be maybe because of the book, but because of the story later turned into an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. In some level, you you are also hitting the zeitgeist on this. It really, especially this new book that you have coming out also feels to me like just such an enjoyable read. And I agree totally with everything you just said. Like it, it definitely is playing by your own rules. But I wonder like, what was it like for you to have written this book about something that, and, and written it in a way that is still tied into your sensibilities, but also seem to have a bit of a moment within pop culture. I mean, I have this very ambivalent relationship with self-promotion and talking about my own work. And, and I'm glad that, that they use the story for the Unsolved Mysteries episode and so on. But like they came and filmed in the building and they, and they filmed like three hours of interviews with me and they just never used any of that. No and I think it's, yeah. And, and I think that they, because my conclusions or lack of them didn't really fit with the narrative, like they had a structured narrative. So I think this is the same problem in a nutshell that like the formula of Unsolved Mysteries is, you know, there's a, there's the, the victim and the victim's family and then the potential bad guy and, and the fact that, that I felt it was probably psychosis and, and that the villain was not actually a villain didn't it just didn't fit into the narrative so they didn't use any of it you know having having seen both the the episode of unsolved mysteries and having read your book i guess maybe i just brought a lot of my own pathos into it and i i guess i guess it's it's funny cuz like when you watch the show or at least when i watch the show because I'm somewhat of a fan of the true crime genre, but I, I feel very much like yourself. A lot of that that shit that they put on top of it, the kind of structural comfort yeah. part of it just kind of washes over me. And yeah. the thing that I kind of walked away with that I think you really captured more specifically, how closely tied this case was to the idea of escape and invisibility and people's like, fears and curiosity around that and what is it like to not be remembered what is it like to just suddenly disappear what is it like to know that there's once again this idea that you could just peel back the surface whether that exists in reality or within your own mind and and jump into it maybe for the uh, listeners can you just give like a an abridged explanation of what this book or what this case is about yeah it was I'm sure more people watch the 
Unsolved Mysteries episode and read the book, but it was the first episode of the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries that came out. During a pandemic, didn't it? Yeah, it was July. Yeah, it was July uh, last year. So I live in this old apartment in Baltimore that was no hotel. And a long time ago, like 15 years ago, when I first, well, 10 years ago, when I first moved in here, it was 2009, this happened, that I started seeing these missing posters in the street for a, a guy who'd gone missing, and I got kind of interested in it. Then a week later, they found the his dead body in the building, and he seemed to have jumped off the roof because his, his body had been found in this disused office complex that's on the second floor, and it hadn't been found for a week because the, the room was unused. And so everyone assumed it was a suicide. There was talk of a suicide note. I kind of dismissed it, assuming it was a suicide. And But then all this really interesting stuff came out that he was newly married. He was had absolutely no reason to commit suicide. He was uh, really healthy. He was making all these plans. He made plans for the next weekend. He was making plans to move back to LA. He'd uh, had lots of friends. He was, you know, had no mental health problems. He was not the kind of guy that would, commit suicide and also that um he was working for this company that had a very dodgy reputation and had been investigated by the sec and and that he was he the week before he died he'd applied to join the freemasons and then he'd left this really strange note that seemed to be coded and so it was like one thing after another and i just got like deep really fascinated by this and i over it was over like 10 years i would get into it and then let it drop again and then get involved in it again and then let it drop again and I couldn't let it go and it was it felt like because it was because it like you know I live on the fifth floor of this building and the body was found in this building it felt like this thing had fallen into my lap and I could not <laughs> and I couldn't understand why no one had found it as curious as I did and people weren't following it up and so eventually when uh, I finally his wife finally agreed to talk to me and I flew out to LA and talked to her and then finally got enough material to put together a book proposal and it's also it's not just a book about this the mystery it's a book about me and my morbid curiosity and my preoccupations and the, you know some people really didn't like the book because of all the tangents and peripheries it goes on which to me are the best part yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then uh, the Unsolved Mysteries people made, a, made it the, the first episode of their new series. And then after that, like, it, you know, I was getting emails all the time and there were all these Reddit people investigating. <laughs> still are, like, I'm still getting requests to decode a note and strange suggestions and, like, but it's um, not mine anymore. <laughs> you know, it's taken a, lot, a life of its own. Was that thrilling? Were you an Unsolved Mysteries watcher from the 90s? No, I I mean, I grew up in the UK, so I'd never, I'd never, like I knew of it. And I like the idea of Unsolved Mysteries. And I think that, you know, I've watched some of the older seasons and they do touch on the thing that you and I both like about you know, the true crime, the idea of that people could possibly, like they always seem to have a supernatural episode or a UFO episode or mm -hmm. like, there's this like, suggestion that people could possibly, like there is this other level of reality that people can disappear into. 
there's like hints of that, but it's never fully fleshed out. Because uh, for me, this show was a huge part of my childhood. It was just mm-hmm. something that I remember, you know, I was asking you earlier about like non-art related aesthetic experiences yeah. that kind of blew your mind. Like yeah. for me, I had this book that I had when I was like really young about exorcisms and the satanic panic and the Loch Ness mm. Monster and Bigfoot. Yeah. And out of all of those things, I was just so enamored by the idea of poltergeists. And this definitely has something to do with the movie yeah. that you could just be like ripped out of this world and pushed behind some sort of screen that somebody had to have some sort of special access into to, to reach out to you. There was just something so endlessly terrifying and fascinating about that to me but what was interesting about unsolved mysteries was that like from watching so much of that show as a kid it almost made me feel as though there was something intrinsic within all people that made them want to disappear and it just hadn't been diagnosed or it hadn't been like there wasn't enough medical research on it but it did propose this world where this is just something that people do and this is just how it goes. We just don't know any enough about it. You mean we all have the potential to do it? like Or less the potential and more the need to do it. Desire. Yeah. That's really interesting because I was listening to the, um, I think it was Gina Nutt you were talking to about Poltergeist and mm-hmm. I think <laughs> that episode really reminded me of how important books used to be to, like physical books I would have the had the book of the amateur horror and the book of the exorcist you know I was just a kid but I would be so I would be reading the physical book and then I'd be so afraid of the book itself I'd like hide it under my bed and not want to open it again yeah because it was like a literal incantation yeah exactly and it's like the physical object of the book and like my, my my brothers would like freak me out by like stealing the book and like putting it in different places in my room it was like this book <laughs> contained this this um port it was a portal itself and even at the time even like before the internet when you'd go and watch a movie you'd have like you'd look at the newspaper and there'd be like three movies showing that week and you'd have to choose it by the title alone and or the poster and just that had such a like so much valence that yeah that's all gone like you have no idea what it was about but the the title itself and the and the rating and the poster was could conjure up all these demons and it was it was strange that that time necessitated signifiers so heavily you know like it had to have this compelling photo or painting or you know, whatever that would draw you in. Whereas now it's like, you know, you'll go to a YouTube and you'll watch the trailer or you'll go to Rotten Tomatoes and see that it's already shitty. And like, there was definitely something yeah. about that time that felt so fertile and, and I don't know, I guess like atmospheric or yeah. something like that. Yeah. I remember going to see The Exorcist at like, and this was, I was underage and I think it was an X-rated movie and I was like, 15 or 16 and I had to like I'd never been to see an x-rated movie and I I had to like wear my mother's high heels and lipstick to like pretend I was older (laughs) to get into the movie theater and and I was really disappointed that the woman taking my ticket didn't even look up like she didn't care how old I was and then sitting starting to watch the movie 
and it was you know it's kind of boring for the first half an hour but then it gets into the the demon possession parts and I remember feeling like I'd taken like like you have this feeling when you've taken a big tab of acid and you can't go back and it's too late and like you're in for it yeah and like you've taken something that you you're not prepared for and it's and <laughs> like there's nothing you can do except sit there and like I guess I could have got up and left the theater but I just was frozen to the spot and a kid today won't have that experience I don't think so yeah like it, it, everything just kind of moves too quickly to to really like find yourself like that deeply immersed in something but I don't know who knows but I don't know like I, I do also wonder like from writing that writing that book and unexplained death and spending so much time with this just very bizarre not only mystery but bizarre aspect of of humanity like there's just so many questions about like why like what aspect of self-loathing led you to this place or what confusion or what side outside forces and I don't know that it's just like this real miasma of potentiality that would lead someone to do this but I, I do wonder like did you learn anything about yourself from doing this? Because you were such an integral character in this book. And to me, you were kind of what propelled it and moved it forward and and really like anchored, not to say that the story needed to be anchored, but it anchored it in a way that like, at least I felt, oh, I really relate to this, especially as you know, your you or your character within the book that was so preoccupied with the idea of invisibility and not being remembered by people, which is, I don't know, something that I think about a lot. And I can't tell if it's just me or if it's just because of this time and having that registered to so many people wondering about my own invisibility. And I don't know what that means. I think it a couple of things I learned about it were one was that when I talked to victim's wife and his her friends that they were you know she always wanted to write about it and they were talking about making a documentary about it and I I knew in in my heart that that probably wouldn't get made but I knew that mine would be that I that I would follow this because I ha I know that I have some like really stubborn curiosity that is never never get satisfied and will follow something <laughs> endlessly and so it was uh, so that was a kind of realization that dark curiosity can be put to use and the other thing was that like in the last couple of years not really to do with covid but a lot of people i know died or and how it's it always strikes me how quickly it's over you know and right even like even like during the funeral, like how quickly people talk about, go on to talk about like the baseball score or something like it's that person is out of it. And, and that always brings it home to me that you have to have your own reasons for, for making a life for yourself. And you have to like, everything you do has to be for you because other people aren't, you know, you might as well be invisible to other people. It doesn't matter. Like it's all, you, you have to like make a, make meaning for yourself out of it. And also something that I knew anyway, but that keeps being reasserting itself and, I, and certainly from listening to your podcast is like how much, like 
you know, if you and I met, for example, we might not, like, in the flesh, have much in common or get along. But when you're, like, <laughs> just writing or even talking or, like, you can get beyond that to some kind of essential core that that puts you kind of, like, your essential humanity is shared. And I found this with friends that I have in prison who I, my most most of my relationships on the phone or in letters, which is very rare these days. And I, and I realized that like, it's, you know, in, in the flesh, we don't really know each other and probably would not get along, but when you can get under the skin, <laughs> <It's not true. laughs> like when, yeah, when you can like go, go beyond the everyday reality and dig deep and get into someone's mind, there's this kind of core of essential humanity that's there that you can't get you can't get to any other way and and I feel like that's something that you get to with your um, interviews. Well, thank you. I mean, I definitely try to do so, but I also think the people that I'm speaking to, like yourself, have already done the first step and developed a thing that I'm responding to, which is the art and the aesthetic and the atmosphere, and that to me is the thing that brings me the most comfort in life yeah. and the thing that like means the most to me and especially you know when it's someone like yourself like I've been reading your books since like the early 2000s when they were on creation and I've been following your um your evolution you know from writing about like cannibals and cursed films to hyenas and and pop culture and to your current incarnation of somebody we're like working within the mode of true crime and that to me is just so it's awesome. It's it's so exciting, and it it does go to show that producing the work and doing the work and developing that sensibility and that dialogue, not only with yourself but with other artists and with other art forms and with these people that you're writing about, is so intensely meaningful. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not a great fan of nostalgia, but it has been kind of nostalgic listening to some of these interviews and like like hearing what Matthew Stoke had to say about creation like so many people had a bad time like really bad time with creation and I never did but really tell me about tell me about your relationship with it because I to me creation is like the first publisher that had like a visceral meaningful impact on me where I was aware of of publishers sensibility and the work they were putting out there and was just so taken by yeah me too I, I so I was in London, this must have been like sometime in the 90s and I, maybe mid 90s. And I, like I found a creation book in some independent bookstore. And I think it was a book called Inside Terror Dome, which is about freaks in cinema. And I'd never, like it talked about the films I loved in a, in a really um, intriguing way. And I'd never, ever seen a book like that before. It was an academic book, but it was very serious. It wasn't like, popular book and um and I and I remember writing to the like address in the book saying I'd really like to write a book for you and I can't remember what proposal I had um <laughs> but I got a letter back saying you know no we don't really want a book on that but and then like a few weeks later James Williamson who's the who ran creation called me and said like well we would we would like a book on cannibalism and I thought, oh, great, I'll do that. Like, how um, how unusual is it, like, now to get, like, a publisher to call you and say, 
we'd like a book on this and just because you'd written them a letter and um it you know it's amazing it was a small press and and they they were like a bit dodgy <laughs> in some ways and kind of <laughs> apparently very right <laughs> because i'd been in academia and i'd written academia, i was never expecting like royalties or money from it or anything like that so to me it was just like this these people were interested in publishing what i had to say and and then i like, got to know them and hang out with them and and got to know other people who wrote for creation and it was more like a kind of subcultural world that i got involved in and yeah so i yeah. never so i never i never expected money from them and like when i and like see some of the books were the photos were screen grabs that were a bit blurry and some of the glue didn't work and the books would fall apart and they were like but on the other hand you know if you're like dealing with transgressive writing and literature you you also come across transgressive people and the rules don't always apply i could be wrong but at least for me that was like the first truly transgressive publishing label I'd ever come across. I know there's like Grove Press, but to me, Grove Press is is amazing, but they're definitely a much more polished. Yeah, the hybrid. Whereas in creation was just, it's funny. I remember, God, it must've been 2001. It was right after 9-11. I had gone to London. I remember going to a bookstore and uh, Creation Books having their own table at this store yeah. and I, I definitely I to this day beat myself up because I've paid like up to like a hundred plus dollars for Peter Soto's books that were all there on that table and I remember picking them up and being like oh I could buy all of these for like fifty dollars but just being too much of a poor college student to do so but yeah I have to say like creation books were the first books where I would pick them up and had a visceral reaction to the writing. You know, it's how I discovered Matthew Stoko, who's like a dear friend of mine, and I'm just such a, a fan of his. But I'm curious, like, who did you who did you meet from Creation Books? Like, what doors did that open, or what, like, contacts that you made? When I published that Cannibal book, I was, um, that was like 99, I think. I, and then I left London in 99, I came to the US, and for two years I was at, I was in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was wow. kind of in the middle of nowhere and and I, you know, I didn't really know anyone. And so every time there was a like book expo, the creation people would come come over and also they came for like the underground Chicago Underground Film Festival. And I met Peter Sotos and Adam Parfrey and this guy Mark Hainer, who's an underground filmmaker, and Jack Sargent, a lot of like and you know, people who were really into the underground film and, and writers who I got to know and and really got along with and so it was like I always had one leg in like one foot in academia and one foot outside of it and it felt very kind of like affirming that way and that was like did you ever come across head press head press no like this that was the other publisher that was like creation that there was this journal called Head Press that was the Journal of Sex, Religion, and Death, and it published all this kind of really <laughs> strange. Uh, and the and the guys who ran that were all had also their own press, and they put out some really great books too. So it was like finding those two. You know, it's it's interesting how when you're a kid, like 
discovering something like that can be so meaningful for you much more than meeting a person you you realize that like yeah your sensibility and your way of looking at the world is not unique and that there's like other people who think the way you do it's it means so much when when you're that age it means so much it's funny just think now when it seems like something like that is just such a relic of the past we have publishers like amphetamine sulfate and nine banded books who you didn't write this book it's written by a a prisoner ex-prisoner named henry bellows but it has your commentary as part of it and then there's some interviews at the end and the book is called confessions of a prison bitch and it is just the most like down and dirty transmission from humanity's darkest corner which is just so very much like in line with this conversation about creation books but I would would love to hear more about it because I found the text to be just so it's ostentatious and banal yet it's totally readable and addictive and it's very much in line with, with what we were talking about earlier where you know by not filtering out a problematic person's mind and language and the story that they want to tell you really get a clear not only a clear work of art but you get more than a lesson you get a true tone of a person so I'm just curious to know like how did you come into this project had you ever met Henry Bellows like I'd love to hear about this you know I didn't know him when I was teaching in a prison but I did know him and he was like really influenced by Bukowski and I didn't know any of this backstory. Like to me, he was just an old man. Um, How'd you meet him? Well, I was um, teaching in a prison. Like I got very close to a group of guys who were all either sex offenders or it was a maximum security prison. So I got to know them all pretty well. And this, and I had a reading group and we read a lot of books. And and this guy got really interested in Bukowski, and he decided that he was in his sixties. He decided it was. He, he wanted to try writing about his own life and I had no idea that any of this had happened I mean I didn't even know that he was I didn't even think of him sexually like he was an old man in my class you know and it was just like really fascinating not just the stories that he told but the way he tells them like you would never read anything like this in any kind of mainstream or commercial publication I've never read anything that's so Frank about you know someone committing crimes and the pleasures the pleasure of the crimes and and the lack of any connection that he makes between like what he does and what what happened to him as a kid and like this kind of lack of self-awareness was so interesting to me and then like the more I like the more time I spend with people who are actually really stigmatized sex offenders and pedophiles and like there's this whole system of life that's just fascinating and realizing that these people are so complicated and and so similar to anyone else that um that there's this like parallel underground world there and how what interested me so much was just this this the way that he talks about consent really I mean he doesn't really talk about it it's more like he describes what happened to him but there's so many right. implicit things about how complicated the idea of consent is especially when you're in prison and, and rights are taken away from you and 
you know, I was editing this when the Me Too movement was going on. It really puts all that kind of thing in perspective about like what consent means and and how unruly and colonizing the sex drive is and and how people respond to trauma by fetishizing it and by colonizing it and and how the unconscious works and how like none of that is taken into account in account in when people are talking about oh he put his hand on my knee or something there's so much more so many more complicated stories that never get told this class that you were teaching in prison was this your uh, focus on fiction program no that was in um that was in a, a psychiatric hospital so this was like okay pr- this was more like a a book club i i read about it in a book called the maximum security book club it was the reading group for prisoners in a prison and he and this guy was one of the guys in the group but i think i think you're right about the the, the missing elements of the true crime story and that's also what i wanted to do in with brian is like the crime for most perpetrators is the beginning and they live the rest of their life we never hear about that. Outside of Bukowski, what was his motivation for writing this? Was this something that you had encouraged him to do? No, you know, I gave them Hamon Rye to read and he was like really, really taken by it. And he, he never, he hadn't read very much at all. And he was really shocked that there could be a book that like he thought it told the truth about the way things really were. And he thought that maybe like he too had a story, interesting story to tell. And he started writing about his life and he would send me the pages. And I was kind of shocked and disturbed, but I also felt like people have to read this because this is something you never hear. And I didn't think he felt that it was, I don't think he was thinking of it being like telling an untold story. I think he was, when he read Bukowski, he felt like, oh, you can say this stuff you can talk about these things. Like you can talk about sexual feelings and what you had to do to, to get off and, and the strange things that happened to you. And I don't think he felt that he was revealing a side of life that hadn't been revealed. I think he felt he was just writing about his life. Maybe just to give the listeners some more context about this. This, I mean, you'll probably do a better job at explaining this than I am, than I can, but this is definitely what I'd say maybe the most edgy book I've read in a long time. And it's very, very intense. And it's somebody that had died while serving a life sentence for rape in prison. And the book is basically him recounting his most formative experiences as well as his criminal exploits. And his formative experiences are so brutal. I mean, they're mainly about him being gang raped in prison from a young age and being really indoctrinated into the institutional system and kind of living his life out there as somebody that is somewhat comfortable with a being violated and being a violator and there's no moralizing in this book it's just basically him i mean there's your commentary and there's some interviews at the end with you and peter sotos and chip smith but overall, it's um, it packs a punch. It, it's unlike anything I've ever read before. Yeah, and I, like, I found some of the like the descriptions of his the rapes like almost 
disgusting in a in a just a brutal way but I could also see that like this guy was at 14 put into a, a DC penitentiary when the cops knew that they were putting him in this room with like 76 deprived black guys basically and he's like raped all night and traumatizes him and his father was a rapist apparently and he's had a very kind of voyeuristic growing up listening to his father rape his mother and being a kind of peeping Tom but he still hasn't even ejaculated at this point like and he he continues to be abused and goes in and out of the prison system and eventually he ends up in San Quentin and Soledad and after a lot of this trauma he eventually starts to accept it and then to realize that this is a way to to be liked and to not to be hurt to go along with it to be a bitch to make yourself into a woman and and then eventually he starts to crave it and it just it's a very different way of depicting that line between acceptance and submission and consent and violation I don't think many people will read this because it's so brutal but I think it's really important an important story to be told how much of it do you think was him being and not to say I'm not trying to um say anything that like he's not telling the truth or anything like that but I do wonder as you being a woman from the outside in prison talking to this guy about this topic how much of it do you think was do you or do you think any part of it was him being performative or titillating or trying to shock you or to get like a rise out of you as the person in the position of power trying to open up these gates and I'm assuming he probably assumed that you were the only person reading this I know that like I I found like newspaper accounts of his crimes so I knew that he was he, he was describing them accurately and he was telling the truth but I also know that he like part of his fetish was to like he he was a peeping Tom and most voyeurs are also exhibitionists and like he got off on like forcing people women to confront male sexuality and his sexuality in particular so I think that spurred it on and and caused like I think that's why he he liked sending me the chapters but I also think he was telling the truth you know and this was a like a way of getting the truth out of him which wouldn't ordinarily come out yeah no that makes sense I mean it really feels as though this book is an extension of his body in some way and not to say that this book is a violation but it it almost feels like you're being swallowed by something when you read it it feels like it's covering you and you're like entrenched in some sort of darkness and there's no it's like totally dark there's just like no light getting through and it feels a little bit manipulative in in a in a good way not to say like this is not not a judgment on any on any level but it definitely feels like an authentic yeah piece of work from that kind of mind from that kind of person with all its flaws and with whatever he was trying to do it's just him yeah. doing it and it, and there's just something very fascinating about that I think manipulative is right it's like a dog peeing on his territory it's like 
this is his way of taking his place in the world and it's like he can only do it at the expense of other people but it's natural and he, he can't help doing it and it's been done to him it's the thing he knows best yeah yeah Let's get into Couple Found Slain, which is your upcoming book, which is in some ways I feel like a bit of your magnus opus. It's really amazing and like it's just so fun to read and it kind of hits on all of these things that we're talking about. So tell me about Brian Bechtold and how did you come in contact with him? Well, at the same time as I was um, doing this class in prison, I, I was on sabbatical actually and I wanted to teach in some unusual context and I'd heard that you know I knew people took teaching <laughs> prison and they told me it was very rewarding and so I was teaching a class in prison I was teaching the same class in this forensic psychiatric hospital and Brian was one of the men in my group and you know some of them were very clearly mentally ill and some less so but Brian seemed there didn't seem to be anything I couldn't tell there was anything wrong with him he's very funny and articulate and interested and enthusiastic and helpful and um and I was surprised that he was there and then we had a few conversations after class and at one point he he mentioned that he'd been there for more than 20 years and I was really shocked then especially since most of the patients were there for you know a lot of them had committed pretty bad crimes but they weren't not left for that that long and I felt like he must have done something very serious and the more I talked to him and got to know him the more complicated his story seemed and it turned out that he killed his parents which is a terrible thing but it's not that unusual in in a hospital like that to have patients who kill schizophrenic patients who kill their parents or one of their parents and parasite used to be called a schizophrenic crime it's very common and and Brian had like in he's now been there more than 27 years and he's tried to escape and like I think one of the the impetus for me writing the book was to realize how long he'd been there and how complicated his life was and how you think most true crime is like oh he was he was found guilty and sent to a or he was found not criminally responsible and sent to a mental hospital and that was it that's the end and yet right, they disappear yeah and they disappear and that's the beginning actually of most people's lives right, go right, on. right and even though he's lived in this one place for the last 27 years he's he's witnessed murders he's been shot by police he's he's had a psychiatrist who was criminally insane I mean, all kinds of things have happened to him it's a very complicated and interesting story and um, the more he told me the more i wanted to tell it it's, it's truly amazing. And I, I want to try to not give away too many of the specifics and the details because it really does go places. It's not like this is just about him recounting traumas while being institutionalized. But I do wonder, like when you were talking to Brian, how were you talking to him? Like, were you talking to him as though you were just some a person passing through his world or were you a therapist or were you a teacher or were you some combination of the three like or a writer like i'm i'm just curious like how did your rea- interaction and relationship with him play out well once i started to hear once he started to tell me a story i realized i wanted to write about it and i proposed you know i said to him that i wanted to write a book about this. and this is while i was still volunteering I wanted to write a book about the case. Okay. And, and I asked him, is it okay with you? And 
would there be any potential repercussions? And he said, there's nothing else they can, you know, they've done everything they can to him. There's nothing <laughs> else they can do. And he has no problems. He'll tell me his whole story. He'll give me all his documents. I promised him a proportion of the uh, advance, which is not very much. And and I also, like, have been his friend and, like, have visited him and talked to him on the phone. And I talked to his sister and got to know her. And she confirmed a lot of the things that he told me. And he shared all his psychiatric records with me. And so once I stopped volunteering there, it was more of a friend, I guess, I would say. And he, he knew that I wanted to tell his story and he wanted to help me. But, and I've tried to help him in any way I can. It's very hard, but he never, he's never expected that, like, I'm going to get him out. Or what I'm wary about is that, like, that reviewers will think I'm prejudiced or complete, completely subjective. And, and I, what I really want to get across is that his reaction to the situation is the same as anyone's reaction. And, when he like killing your parents is not a normal thing to do, I admit that. But the way he's responded to what's happened in the hospital is is not dysfunctional. It's the way anyone would respond. His story of being institutionalized and, and growing up in that environment is just we were talking about at the beginning, just the idea of feeling uh loneliness in the face of other people or being truly alone. And I think his pain is just something that's just so unique and intense. And I think maybe it might be a good idea to, to spell out just once again, with not giving away too much of what's in the book that happens to him, but what got him into this situation. Because one thing that I found to be really fascinating was that there just really, there seems to be this seed of mental illness that spread throughout his family. And I think that's like a common thing. It happens with a lot of, mental illness in general it's it seems like it's something that's like passed down and it is interesting to think how just something as undiagnosed as mental illness can be carried down from parents into their children and it almost felt like there was something within him that was designed to self-destruct and he became aware of it and before he killed his parents, he was institutionalized already for something else. And it made me think that maybe mistakenly at a young age, it became a trigger and pushed him to do the things that he did because it seems like throughout this book, it's almost enraging in a sense when you when you think about like, how do we treat somebody that's like very obviously sick? So many of the things that happened to him and so many of the so-called treatments and the the way they've constructed his life for him can only result in making somebody more crazy and more violent. No, no you're right, and I, and I think that you can be you can be born into you can be born with a seed of something like you said, but you can also be driven mad by a torturous family or a torturous situation. It's not necessarily an organic disease, but I think also in Brian's case, it was like a large family of children and not you know abusive the parents were abusive they were not on the on the scale of abusive parents not you know they weren't like torturing their kids in the basement but they were failed parents they made a mess of their parenting but I feel like in Brian's case it was like you know he was born much later than the other kids he was unwanted 
he, he knew that. And in a way it was like the parents produced something that was like, it was like load, they loaded the gun, you know, by producing yeah, him, yeah. They were like, like he was enacting what all the other siblings felt and wanted to do. And he was enacting the un, unexpressed desires of the family, the entire family. It was almost like he became a signifier for their intended or desired split from reality. Right, that he was the, you know, this thing that they had produced as like a, a machine to enact their um, punishment. Yeah, and after he killed his parents, the, the reason that he ended up being institutionalized is that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and it makes me wonder, and this is a question, is just, is schizophrenia something that is straightforward in terms of diagnosis, or is this somewhat subjective and on a sliding scale? I think now, now people, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of controversy about diagnosis anyway, but I think, like, I think the schizophrenia is almost a catch-all for, for any kind of psychotic, any, anything that's like a, a a detachment from reality, a break from reality. So it's, it's really a pretty vague label, almost like psychosis, like that, yes, schizophrenics are on a, a very broad scale from, you know, a person who can be a college professor to like, there's a great memoir by a woman called Ellen Sachs, who's a law professor at Harvard about called the center will not hold about her experience with schizophrenia to, mm -hmm. you know, to a, to someone who's catatonic, who can't speak or move. And so it's a huge area of psychotic illness. And, you know, Brian's very, very much at the positive end. He's, but he himself admits that he was very, he was mentally ill for a long time. And he was extremely mentally ill when he committed this crime. But just, just the same way that people recover from physical illness, People also recover from mental illness. And I, I feel like Brian has recovered over the years. And yet he's just, you know, he's in this trap that he can't get out of. I think that's been one of the most fascinating questions that came to my mind while reading this was just like, is there a cure? Does this go into remission? Does a person change? Is the person that did something 20 years ago the same person that you're dealing with now? If you keep them in this position of being the patient, are you almost engineering them to act out? And it really seems like that's exactly what happened right. to him. And especially when you think of the idea of an engineer in general, I thought that was like one of the most interesting points that you had written about that there's a connection between so many patients with schizophrenia that either had fathers who were engineers or were studying to become engineers themselves. And it, it does feel like something about making people feel like there's a predetermined path for them and that they have to follow that will, will drive them to a certain madness. Yeah. But there's also, I think a connection between like rationality and madness too like, like what brian is doing is his reactions like so he realized like this is a situation he can't even commit suicide like there's not you know there's no even there's suicide barriers everywhere every way to commit suicide so like he would rather be dead than be there so of, 
of course, like he tries to escape and the worst that can happen is he's sent back there. Like he may be shot by police and killed. That's fine. He may get sent to prison, which would be better, but all the psychiatrists see that as um, a paranoid, psychotic acting out. But to a rational, to anyone else, it's a perfectly rational, like to you or I, it's like a perfectly rational um, response to the situation. But because he's been diagnosed with schizophrenia, everything becomes um, a reaction to that diagnosis and he can't escape. Yeah. It. And he's, he's doing what any rational person would do under those circumstances, but it's never seen as a rational act. Yeah, I mean, I found him to be such a tragic figure. And I also felt that he, he, he seemed to function as a certain kind of archetype that hasn't been really codified in the public psyche yet, but in this weird way that felt even more kind of tragic and sad to me was that he had to bear witness to a life within the shadows and confines of a mental hospital. And in some ways he's just this, I don't know, he's almost like a new literary figure of an American martyr that's used to test a, a, a biased system that doesn't really even understand what it's doing, but he just has to be there and he's stuck in this, this place, this purgatory. I think that's a word you use yeah. in the book for a chapter. And um, yeah, I, just, I, I found it just to be so haunting. And like, I don't, I'm, I'm worried that people will think it's that I'm too, that I'm not objective enough. And so the reason why I like includes much of the, verbatim transcript from his court trials when he's defending himself is like I want to like I want to put across like how rational and articulate he is like this is someone who's who, who's defending himself in a trial against psychiatrists and like presenting his own perspective in a very rational articulate way and much better than any any of us could probably do but he still gets nowhere I know. And, and one of the, you know, you have like these photos that introduce all the chapters and there's like most of them or a lot of them are stills from, I believe it's an old A&E program from the nineties. And I tracked this thing down. I think, what's it called? Loosening the straitjacket. Yeah. Loosening the straitjacket. It's a nineties program from A&E saying so, you can see him. He's obviously, he's much younger when this is taking place and I think you do a really great job actually at um, describing what he looks like in the, in, the, um, in the program. But I have to say, watching him deal with a psychiatrist where they're making him like open his mouth and like yeah. move fucking chips on a table around, and, you know, to some sort of shape. I was like, and my, like it made my stomach drop, actually. There, there was something just so profoundly upsetting about it. And it's funny because I I, re I watched it as I read it, and as the story progresses, he he definitely acts out after the time that this thing was filmed. And you, you when you watch it, you can feel it. I mean, it's like he's being treated like chattel or something, and and you're like, what's the end of this? Like, where does this where does this right. go? I, it's almost like he, better to just be in prison for life. In the show, they compare him to like. Like he's the he's the the stable rational one. They compare him with these other guys who are like totally 
nuts. Crazy. And, yeah, and all of those guys are out, you know, long ago. Wow. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I am curious what you think about this as a psychoanalyst, but also just, I guess, as a person. But I think the sickest minds cannot identify what they desire but from reading this and seeing footage of brian it really seems like he knows exactly what he wants and there's such an acute awareness of his suffering and the harm that he's caused that makes the situation just so much more intense in a situation like brian's what do you think it is that keeps him alive i think he's aware that like for the psychiatrists and the hospital authorities and maybe human beings in general there's no like we have to have these boundaries and like so you're either a doctor or a patient or a nurse or a patient there's nothing you can't be in between you can't violate those boundaries at all because if you start to do that then the whole structure collapses and we realize that like uh, we're all just struggling with being human and um, mm-hmm. and i think I think Brian's aware of that. And and I think the things that keep him going are he has religious faith, which he can't talk about because it's considered psychotic if he does. So he has to keep Which himself. is it's, I know. it's so sad. And it's all his only transcendence. And also that he like there are people like him in there who he's who are going through the same situation and he sees them leave and come back and leave and come back and he's like that he's not alone and that's at least a little bit of gratification like he sees friends of his on the same ward who who get out and they tell him you know if you could do it if i can do it you can do it and there's a it's the same in prison you know there's a sense of like you have to you have to have this faith because otherwise you know, there's, there's no reason to go on. You have to at least fantasize and have a an illusion that at least you'll get out someday, that you're not completely invisible. Yeah, yeah, God. And like having spent so much time with a figure and a person like Brian, like what's the biggest lesson you've learned from him, from his situation, from his reality? You know, it goes back to the, unexplained death and the question about invisibility that I mean we are really invisible to each other but having said that I think the things that make that have made a difference in Brian's life are the occasional kind word from a psychiatrist or meeting a psychiatrist who treats him like an interesting person instead of like a schizophrenic or like the occasional person who who treats him as an equal and who is empathetic and kind to him. And, and I think that's the same, like realizing that, that you have to forge your own meaning. And sometimes it can, sometimes it's going to be reinforced by other people. Most of the time it won't be. Would it be in any way helpful or, would this be something that Brian recommended? Can like people reach out to him and write him or is that just kind of like a little bit too weird and, and not appropriate? But, like I told him that this, you know, I sent him the reviews, of the book that have come out and that like, I, you know, I've told him it's going to be reviewed in the New York Times, but like 
it it doesn't mean anything to him like he doesn't he doesn't have any contact with the world outside the hospital so like he's never been on the internet he doesn't really know what if it doesn't help his like daily reality then it's it doesn't mean anything I mean so I don't think the book will change anything actually but yeah I just don't think there's anything that can be done Mm, has he read the book yeah he's read it like he read a lot of earlier versions which he liked a lot more because they were much more about the hospital he he doesn't like the emphasis on the crime he wants more emphasis on the suffering but you know i understand that but the crime is 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 important the way you structured it is is good and and like i can understand why he might not be into it but i think it it is uh it's necessary yeah yeah and i think maybe as a way to like close this out i would love to get makita brotman's recommendation on the darkest most visceral book recommendation <laughs> honestly i i don't know about visceral my favorite book for a long time has been conrad's heart of darkness and it's you know a lot of people will find that a little bit strange and perhaps precious but i feel like it's the one that really peels beneath the surface and and shows um i mean i'm just think rereading it thinking about the slums of baltimore like it's oh yeah 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 it articulates what it's like like it's a journey it's not you know forget about africa it's to do with like going into the human mind and investigating like peeling back the layers and finding out what's really there so it's it's a it's hard to read and it's what you have to like keep coming back to but like you know it's the book that i I have that I reread at the darkest moments. It's the ultimate slum creeper. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) 